0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, so grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: Say last. It's only fair to warn you that I've shown up here today with way too much material. I have so much stuff that we could talk about, and I'm really trusting that as we go through it, the Spirit will lead us in the proper direction and help me edit through it so that we don't keep you here until 3 o'clock. But I say with great confidence, I could, <laughs> I could keep you here until three. I have that much material. You can turn to Romans seven. That's where we technically are. We will get there eventually. I received an email from one of our online listeners and she asked a question that I think we all have asked at some point in our lives. But she said, uh, after saying some very nice things about the ministry and about the teaching, she said, could you refer me to one of your teachings on sin after conversion? Specifically, What manner of perfection was Paul intending that we achieve having died to sin in Christ? Which is the very thing we talked about last week that we reckon ourselves dead to sin because we are in Christ, Christ in us. When he died, we died. We are buried in baptism. In relation to his actual death, then he was raised to walk in newness of life, so we should reckon ourselves to be walking in newness of life, and yet we continue to struggle with sin. So she asks, What manner of perfection was Paul intending that we achieve, having died to sin in Christ? Hard as I might try. I cannot rid my life of sin. And if I could, wouldn't that be salvation based on works? That was her question. So, since the question was, could you refer me to one of your teachings on that subject? The answer is yes, this one. Because <laughs> today, that's exactly what Paul is going to get into. I've been reading a lot of stuff because through the years I think we all have struggled with what is our relation both to sin and to the law and to Christ and to holiness and are we living up to the standard that we have in our mind, that we see in the word, the standard of holiness and perfection that we would like to achieve, even though none of us are actually reaching perfection, are we at least reaching a level that we're content with? And I think if you're honest with yourself at all, you would have to say, no. No, after my mind, as Paul is about to say, after my mind, I want to do good stuff. I want to be better, but I just can't seem to get there. Now, last week, in introducing Romans 7, I said to you that Dr. Allman had given the best solution to the question, was Paul writing from the perspective of a saved person? Or was he writing pre-salvation when he was a Jew who was under the law? Which perspective was he writing from here in Romans 7? Dr. Ullman said it doesn't matter because what he's really writing about, the subject that he's writing about, the topic that he's writing about, is the complete impossibility of being saved via the law. And that's the primary point that he's making. If you're getting that point, then it doesn't matter which perspective he's necessarily writing from. However, having said that, and in answer to the question that was asked by our correspondent, I found something that was written by Horatius Bonner. Now, I don't know if you know him. I like reading Bonner. Don't always agree with everything. But then again, nobody agrees with everything about anybody But he was one of the Scottish evangelical and reformed church writers of the last century. And he was writing about chapter 7 of Romans as I was reading and reading and trying to find various sources and trying to really understand what Paul is talking about. Letting him say what it is he's trying to say. So this particular sermon was called God's Way of Holiness, chapter 7, The Saint and the seventh chapter of Romans by Horatius Bonner. And I'm just going to read the first couple of paragraphs of what he wrote, because he actually said it better and more eloquently than I could have said it. And I think we're all going to relate to these words. Because, as I said, I've read a lot of stuff, especially the last few weeks, knowing that we were going to be talking about this on this particular Sunday. So I've been looking for any sources I could find that didn't obfuscate, that didn't try to work their way around what the text actually says. There is a very real, very genuine tension that Paul admits to here when he admits that he loves God, but he just can't find it in himself to do right, to do good. To be holy. So Bonner takes the standpoint that Paul would be writing from the standpoint of a redeemed person, of a saved person. And here's what he says I do not see how anyone with a right insight into the apostles' argument, without some theory to prop up, or with any personal conscience of spiritual conflict could have thought of referring this chapter to a believer's unregenerate condition or to his transitional state while he was groping his way to rest. It furnishes a key to an experience which would otherwise have seemed inexplicable, the solution of perplexities which, without it, would have been a stumbling block and a mystery. It is God's recognition of the saints' inner conflict as an indispensable process of discipline, as a development of the contrast between light and darkness, as an exhibition of the way in which God is glorified in the infirmities of his saints and in their contests with all the powers of evil. Strike out chapter 7, and the existence of sin in a soul after conversion is unexplained. This chapter accounts for the inner warfare of a forgiven man and gives the apostles experience as a specimen of that conflict. The previous chapters show that the man is forgiven, He is justified. He is dead. He is risen with Christ. So then is not sin extirpated? Done away with? The seventh chapter answers, no. It no longer reigns, but it fights. It does not indeed bring back condemnation or bondage or doubt, but it stirs up strife. Strife which the completeness of the justification does not hinder and which the saints progress in holiness does not arrest, but rather aggravates. So that at times there seems to be actual retrogression and not advancement in this spiritual life. Paul said, I delight in the law of God after the inner man. Are those the words of an inquirer, of a doubter, of a semi-regenerate man? No, but they are one who has learned to say with the saints of other days, Oh, how I love thy law, from Psalm One Nineteen 19 and 7. Or with the Messiah himself saying, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. So then... Paul says with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is not the language of an unregenerate or a half regenerate man. When, however, he adds, I am carnal, I am sold under sin. Is it really Paul, the new creature in Christ that he is describing I say that it is. And they who think it is impossible for a saint to speak that way must know very little about sin and even less about themselves. A right apprehension of sin, of any one sin or even any fragment of a sin, if there be such a thing, would produce the oppressive sensation here described by the apostle, a sensation which 20 or 30 years' progress would rather intensify than weaken. They are far mistaken in their estimate of evil, those who think that it is the multitude of sins that gives rise to the bitter cry, I am carnal. One sin left behind, would produce the feelings that are here expressed. But where is the saint whose sins are reduced to only one? Who can say, I need the blood less and the spirit less than I did even 20 years ago? Do you get what Bonner's saying? He's declaring that this is the universal conflict that all serious Christians have. We understand that we are blood-bought. We understand that we are redeemed. We understand that we are in Christ and he is in us. We understand that we have died to sin. We see that language. We understand that language. We know that we have been raised to newness of life. And then we start thinking, but but despite all that, I have not achieved genuine Perfection Certainly not even the perfection that I have set up in my own mind. Even my own ability to reach the point where I can look at myself and say, okay, I'm doing pretty good. Instead, if you're serious about sin, if you really understand what sin is, then you have to look at yourself and say, I can't seem to do it. I can't seem to get there. I want to. Oh, I want to. Oh, I I sincerely want to. I pray to God. I I buffet my body. I keep my flesh down. I do everything I can. But even as you keep your flesh down, your mind will think some corrupt thing, some horrible thing will go through your brain. Or you'll even, as Luther described, you'll even get raised up in pride because of how well you're doing. (laughs) And that pride become sin for you so no matter how hard we try no matter how hard we work we have to admit to ourselves that we're still sinful in our flesh after our mind after the spirit of God that lives within us we desire to be good and to do good But then we're going to find this law, says Paul, this law in the members of our body that where we would do good, nevertheless, evil is present with us. Sin is present with us. People who do say that they are rising above sin now, that they're reaching a greater state of perfection now, the only way that they could reach the point of thinking that is for them to downplay their own sin, to not understand what sin really is. That's Bonner's point. I think it's a good point. I think if there's anybody in this room who doesn't relate to those words and who doesn't relate to what Paul is about to write, you might as well go find another church because we got nothing for you. Because all we got for you is grace for sinners. All we got for you is is the word of God that says, Jesus paid it all. It's actually accomplished. And we reckon ourselves dead with him and dead to the law. So then it has to be, since the law can't help us, and since our flesh can't help us, it has to be grace. And it can't possibly be you. It can't be your flesh Can't be your effort. It has to be the grace of God. There's just no other way it can possibly be, because Paul has systematically eliminated every other possibility. I got an email a couple of weeks ago that said, "Why do you put so much emphasis on grace?" (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's all we (laughs) got.
1: Yeah, the answer is just kind of, duh. What else you got? Paul has already eliminated the possibility that it can be your flesh, that it can be your works, that it can be your personal righteousness or justification, that it can be the law, that it can be anything that you could accomplish in your flesh. Because as we're about to read, it is your flesh that is the problem. And ironically, I grew up in the kind of church that admitted your flesh is the problem, but then they would say, and the solution is your flesh. Get busy. Do stuff. Do better. But since the problem is your flesh, your flesh is not the solution. Because the law does nothing but condemn you and make your sin all the more obvious, the law can't help you. The law and your flesh combined are doing nothing but condemning you, which is why Paul uses the language of the ministry of condemnation. The language that Paul uses when describing the law is consistent across the board. Which is why we need to be delivered from it. Because it does nothing but condemn us. It's why we need to be delivered from our flesh. Because our flesh does nothing but condemn us. And we, sinful people that we are, have neither the ability to make our flesh better, nor the ability to live righteously by the law and have God accept us on that basis so the two most common solutions that the church world by and large will give you the law and the flesh those two don't work and Paul is honest enough to say that in this chapter he has already said that your sinful passions are aroused by the law so, what does the law do? The law plays along with your flesh, and between the two of them, they lie to you and trick you. That's the language Paul's going to use. He's going to say that sin inside him took advantage of what the law said and therefore condemns you. And that's all your flesh and the law can possibly do for you. Now, that being the case where do we find our behavior where do we find our standard because the law as Paul said we're dead to that it's already nailed to the tree taken out of the way so then are you saying stuff now that used to be lawless deeds are now okay to do but we're not under the law we've escaped the law we're dead to the law the law is the ministry of death the ministry of condemnation we don't need the law so then where do we go to find out how to live righteously this is a conversation that Janine and I have have had kind of continually for the last couple of years Where, where then do we go well hold on to that question because it's one of the many things I'm not sure where it fits yet but we're going to get to it (laughs) we're going to get to where then do we find our standard for righteousness if we're delivered from the law because many people think well you got to go to the law some because you got to go to the law for your progressive sanctification a concept I don't Adhere to, but people will hear me say that and say, oh, Jim believes in progressive sanctification because he just used the phrase. No, but there are people who believe in progressive sanctification, and then they're going to send you to Moses so that you find out how to progressively get more sanctified. That becomes the standard. So is there a standard? And where do we find it? How do we know it? What does it look like? Because we are under the new covenant make sense have I stimulated your thinking yet yes Okay. chapter 7 of the book of Romans starting at verse 4 therefore my brethren you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ there it is dead to the law dead to the law Law can't help you, but neither are you dependent on the law for your justification or your righteousness. You are dead to the law, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, so that we might bear fruit to God. But while we were in the flesh, now he's going to keep using this contrast. In the flesh, in the spirit. In the flesh, in the spirit. He's going to talk about walking by the spirit or walking by the flesh. And you have to understand that in Paul's thinking and nomenclature, he being a thoroughgoing Jew, when he's talking about being in the flesh, he's not just talking about doing bad stuff. He's not just talking about breaking the commandments instead what he's talking about is thinking you can achieve your own justification by your flesh through the works of the law that if you just keep the standards of the law that you can somehow obligate God because you did the law that is to walk in Paul's thinking in the flesh because you think that the flesh is going to justify you contrast that with walking by the spirit Which is believing in the finished work of Christ, having faith and confidence in what Christ has done, and therefore being saved, being justified, being glorified as a result of the finished work of Christ, not the works of walking in the flesh. So don't just think in terms of, well, I don't do wicked stuff. Paul says, trying to justify yourself in the flesh is in and of itself walking in the flesh. And he's about to say that leads to death. Because the reality is, we say it, we say it, we say it. We've said it so many times. That if you think you can be good enough to obligate God, then you are begging God to judge you on the basis of how you are and what you have done. And you can't stand up to that test. What you need is for God to cast your sin as far as the east is from the west, not bring it up anymore, forgive you utterly and completely, and when he looks at you, see Christ, Christ in you, you in Christ, that's the safe place to be, therefore, you're either walking in the flesh and begging God to judge you, or you're walking in the spirit, and those things are never going to come up. Do you get the contrast? It's a whole lot more than just, well, I I do good stuff. I haven't committed adultery lately, so I, I don't steal much, so I feel good about me. I'm not walking in the flesh. Well, the very fact that you were attempting to justify yourself based on your works is walking in the flesh. You get Paul's thinking? Okay. For while we were in the flesh. The only way he can say that is. He has already said we are dead to the law. When you were under the law. Him writing to his Jewish contingent in Rome. When you were under the law. You were walking in the flesh. See the parallel. Understand the parallel. For when we were in the flesh. The sinful passions. That were in our body, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So walking by the flesh, trying to walk by the law, but then having your sinful passions stirred up by the law... Cause the members of your body to perform according to your flesh and the end result of that is death but now very good words but now we have been released from the law this is another evidence that he is talking to the Jewish contingent in Rome we Gentiles were never under the law in order to be released from the law But we Jewish believers, writes Paul, we are now released from the law, having died to that by which we used to be bound. We used to be wrapped up in it. We were enchained to it. But now we died to it so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In those three verses... Paul has said, we died to the law, the law stirred up our sinful passions, and the end result of that is death, but we are now released from the law, and we don't walk after the oldness of the letter. So what is Paul's attitude toward the law? Obviously, he has placed it in the category of unhelpful. It can't do anything for you. It will kill you. It will take advantage of you. It will lie to you. I read all that to say, after Paul has used that kind of language, he understands that his audience is naturally going to ask the next question, which is, well, then are you saying the law is sin? Because the law stirs up sin, because the law brings us to death, because we walk by flesh and trying to follow the law. So, are you saying the law is bad? And of course, his answer is no, 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 no. Law is good. Law is holy. Law is righteous. Law is good. The problem's not the law. The problem's you. <laughs> the problem's your flesh. The problem is you can't do it. That's where the problem is. Right away in verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, no. May it never be. In the Greek, it is a firm contradiction. No, never. Can't possibly be. Don't even think that. The law is not sin. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Listen to what Paul's writing. Look at what the words on the page say. I would not have known sin except the law. So then why did God bother to give the law? Why didn't he just ignore the law and not give it and then we all collectively would never know that we were in sin? But God gave the law for the specific purpose of showing us our sinfulness and it did it really really well (laughs) because it demonstrated to us oh yeah you're sinful which we wouldn't have known if there wasn't a law that said that so he gives us this example I would not have come to know sin except through the law for I would not have known anything about coveting except that the law said you shall not covet and that's when Paul realized oh, oh yeah that's, that's kind of exactly what I'm doing yeah I didn't realize I was coveting until somebody said don't do that and then it was like oh wait so there's something wrong with doing that I, I didn't even think about the fact that I was doing it but now that you've pointed out that I shouldn't do it and that it's wrong I recognize that I do it all the time I just didn't know there was anything wrong with it. But sin, this is really interesting. The language, again, that Paul uses, I've wrestled and wrestled with it. Because he almost speaks of sin through the rest of this chapter as if it's a separate entity from himself. Because he says, well, it's not me doing it. Me, I desire God. Me, I love the law. Me, that's what I would do if I could. But sin, taking opportunity by the law, keeps tripping me up. Almost as if sin is this separate from him evil that's in the world. Here, I'll put it this way. Adam and Eve were in the world, but they weren't sinners. Satan brought sin into the garden. So sin is separate from Adam and Eve. But then once sin was brought into the world, Adam and Eve became sinners. Paul is still thinking that way. And he still speaks of sin as this thing that he can't seem to control, but it's not completely actually him. And you'll see that language as we continue. Sin, that thing, took opportunity through the commandments because he just quoted a commandment. Don't covet. Sin took opportunity through that commandment to produce in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Look at the way he keeps using language. Apart from the law, sin doesn't exist it's dead it's a non-thing but once there is a law that says don't be like this you suddenly become aware of how like this you are and therefore the likenessness of you can't be stopped by you because you're suddenly aware this is how you are so where there was no law sin was dead that's why God produced the law So that people would see the deadness of their sinful state. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I, see, separate from sin, sin was dead, verse 9, and I was once alive. ...apart from the law. Before there was a law, I was living it up and I was fine and I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. But then the law came, sin took advantage of the law and produced in me all kinds of evil. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law sin is dead... And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Sin's alive. I'm dead. Once upon a time, sin was dead. I was alive. Now sin came alive. I'm dead. He's using that same language of death and resurrection and life The antithesis of which is, if we die to ourselves, and we die to the law, we die to those things that would kill us and condemn us, and therefore we're alive in Christ. Do you see the contrast he's drawing? Am I alone up here? I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, that's right. When God gave the law, he said, do it and live. If you do this perfectly, perpetually, continually, if you do this law, you'll live by this law. The problem, of course, is nobody save Jesus could actually do it. Therefore, when he said, if you don't do it, you'll fall under a curse. That means everybody that is under that law is under the curse of the law, which is why Jesus died. That's why he took that curse out of the way for us so that we would not have to pay that sin debt ourselves. The commandment, which was to result in life. Proved to me to result in death. So the law is good. The law is holy. The law is perfect. The law was made in such a way that God said, if you do it, you live by it. But Paul says, because of me, because of the way I am, because of my sinful flesh, that law that is good That had life offered inside it, because I couldn't do it, I found that the law resulted in my death. That law caused me to stumble. That law caused me to recognize my own sin. That law kept me in this state of perpetual not good enoughness, if I can make up a word. And here's how it happened. Verse 11, for sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, sin, whatever, the sin entity, this sin thing, this sin that entered into the world, this evil that came down to the planet, that sin took the opportunity of utilizing the good law of God. So the law came into the planet in response to the sin that was in the planet, and sin took opportunity by the law to demonstrate how bad we are. For this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death to me, because sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, lied to me. It deceived me, and through it, it killed me. See the language of death and the language of killing and death is parallel to the language of walking by the flesh and walking by the law, which is why Paul's theology is the only way you can be alive again is to die to the law and to die to the flesh. Otherwise, the flesh and the law, working cooperatively, will lie to you and kill you. So then, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. In other words, you can't blame the law. Even though it is the law that sin took advantage of when it lied to you and killed you, you can't point at the law and say it's the law's fault. You can't say it's the law of God that ended up killing me. No, no, no. You can't blame the law because it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me can I blame the law and can I say that the cause of my death is that good righteous holy law can I get away with that argument well again he states it in the most negative terms he can may it never be no way don't even think it rather here's the problem rather it was sin In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So the law is good, righteous, holy. The problem's not the law. The problem is us and our sinful flesh. And yet there's a great deal of preaching going on that will tell you that the solution is to somehow stir up by the law, stir up your flesh to do the law so that you can then be justified and sanctified by your own effort. And do you see now that Paul's language is, if that's the way you approach things, it will kill you. That's death. That's condemnation. Your flesh can't save you. Are you starting to feel how badly you need a savior? Amen. And it has to be someone outside of you because it just can't be you. And if you think it can be you, you don't know you. You haven't taken a good look at yourself yet. You haven't sized yourself up correctly yet. If you think you can do it. And Paul has eliminated any possibility of it being you. Because it will only result in death. Condemnation. Now we're finally to verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual right the law comes right from God the law is what holiness and righteousness in the flesh would look like if anybody could do it it is spiritual in its essence we know that the law itself is spiritual and if I was also spiritual then I and the law could get along just fine the problem is Paul writes but I am of the flesh So I'm sold into the bondage of sin. That's the problem. There is the essential problem in one verse right there. The law is good and right and holy. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is spiritual. The law is right from God. It is the holy just law. And then there's you. And you are in the flesh. And because you are in the flesh... You are sold into bondage to sin. How do we know that you are sold into bondage? You die. The wages of sin is death. If you don't sin, you don't die. But because everybody dies, proof positive, everybody is a sinner. And because you are sold into bondage to sin, you will always do the bidding of your master. Because sin has mastery over you while you live in the flesh. So there's the problem. There's the conflict. The law is absolutely spiritual. And you are of the flesh. Sold into bondage to sin. Then Paul writes, That which I am doing, I do not understand. Anybody want to testify there? Yeah, what I'm doing, I don't understand. Have you ever woken up right in the middle of some stupid thing you're doing? Said, I don't get anything at this moment. I don't understand how I got, what am I doing? I had so many better options, and yet I ended up here doing this. And you even know that as I'm saying these words, you all conjured up something in your head that you know you shouldn't have been doing. And now that I'm talking about it, you don't understand. If we could put it up on the big screen and we could all look at what everybody, Kenneth, if we could all look at what Kenneth's been doing lately, I just picked Kenneth arbitrarily. If we could all look at what Kenneth's been doing, his only plea is, I don't, I, okay, that's me, but I don't get it. I don't understand. Paul says, What I'm doing, I don't understand. Because I'm not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. The very thing that I don't want to do is what I end up doing. And the things that I am doing, I don't understand because I'm not practicing. I'm not doing the things. I'm not continuing in the activity of those things that I would like to do. Look, after my mind, after my heart, I would like to be the perfect example of what a pastor ought to be like. I lay in bed some nights and think, that's it. From now on, I'm living up to that standard. (laughs) I'm going to... I'm not going to let anybody down ever, and I'm always going to be trustworthy, and I'll always be there for everybody all the time, and I'll just, I'll never say a mean word to anyone, and I'll give all my money to the poor, and I'm just, I, that, that's me, I'm going to be the pastor of pastors, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the best pastor, I can, and I, it doesn't, next morning, I wake up and think, nah, I don't have to get up yet. I'm already in it. I'm already thinking in the flesh. I'm already thinking about myself. I'm already lacking those wonderful qualities that I can imagine in my head. I'm just not being what I imagine in my head. I'm not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing... That I do not wish to be doing, then I agree with the law that it's good. The logic is if what I'm doing is not what I wish to do, but I'm doing it anyway, then I agree with the law when it says that I'm wrong for doing it. The law says, don't do it. I'm doing it. I agree with the law when it says, don't do that. But I end up doing it anyway. So now, verse 17, so now, no longer am I the one that's doing it, but that sin that indwells me. Sin that is inside me, sin that is in the members of my body, sin that is coursing through my veins. That's what's making me do the things I do. I don't want to do them. It's not what I desire to be doing. That's not what I imagine in my mind I'd be doing but I still do it anyway and so I find that it is sin that is in my body that is making me do the things that I don't want to do and I agree that the law is good and right and holy and I wish I could do the law and I wish I could live by the law but I can't do any of those things because I'm in this fleshly body so now no longer says Paul Am I the one doing it? Because after my inner man, after my mind, I want to do the law. But then I don't do the law. So then who is it that's not doing the law? Who's making me not do what I want to do? Sin. It is sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing that I could be better, the wishing that I could do good, the wishing that I could live up to the standard, the wishing is present with me. But the doing of the good is not. The wishing. Anybody here want to testify?
2: Sounds
1: familiar. Yeah. (laughs) We all, because we love Christ, because we love God, because we are grateful for what he has done for us. We want to live to a standard that demonstrates that we are separate from the world and that we are Christian people. We want that very badly. We desire it. We pray for it. It's just not what we do. And it is so reassuring that Paul would write that. Otherwise, I'd be completely dismayed. I would be doubting my own salvation. I would be doubting my own faith, my own love toward God. If it wasn't for this chapter where Paul admits that the law and the flesh result in death, and because we have sin in our flesh, we don't end up doing the very thing we want to do. Because I do want to do it. I do. I just don't do it. And then I'm so disappointed with myself, and I'm so upset with myself, and I hit myself in the side of the head and say, okay, we're going to do better, starting now. Let's do better, starting immediately. And if it weren't for this chapter, I would think well, I might as well just give up. I'm obviously hell-bound. I'm obviously incapable of being saved because I just don't live up to what I know is the right way to be. It's so good that Paul took the time to tell us even he had this struggle. Last week, I summed up the struggle as, help me! (laughs) Do you hear Paul saying, help me? The good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But, verse 20, now he's, he's struggling with it almost philosophically at this point, and he says, but if I'm doing the very thing that I don't wish to do, then I'm no longer the one doing it. Because I don't want to do it, I don't intend to do it, I desire the law, I intend to do better, I intend to follow after the things of God, and yet I find myself not doing those things I wish to do. Therefore, I conclude, it just can't be me doing it, because it's not what I want to do. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, it is sin that dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. You can create your own application. Because isn't that exactly how you feel? Isn't that exactly the struggle that we all live with? We know the Bible is true because it describes us so perfectly. It describes (laughs) us so perfectly. I mean, I wish to do good, but I end up not doing the things that I desire to do. So then I have to conclude. I have to conclude. I don't have any other conclusion I can come to. I have to conclude that sin dwells in me because it makes itself obvious, it makes itself apparent. By the very fact that I don't do the things that I want to do. That makes it obvious that I am a sinner. So then I find this principle. That evil is present with me. I don't want evil to be present with me. I don't want to think of myself as walking around in evil flesh. But I find this principle that because i keep doing the things i don't want to do that's proof positive that sin and evil resides in me the very one who wishes to do good i wish i could do good leon you wish you could do good tom you wish you could do good april you wish you could do good yeah we wish we could do good any of the three of you doing good no, we're, we're all just struggling with this. So then Paul says, this is a principle. And the principle is, sin and evil is still with us, despite the fact that we desire the things of God. Help me! <laughs> I find then the principle that evil is present with me, the one who wishes to do good. Because I joyfully concur with the law of God after my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body that is waging war against the law of my mind, and it makes me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. I find that fascinating. Notice that Paul does not say, I desire to do good, but sin is present in my flesh. Therefore, that makes me a prisoner of my positive mind. He says, instead, though I want to do good, I do evil, which makes me a prisoner of sin and evil. Help me. (laughs) Going down for the third time. Help me. I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched, wretched man that I am. Anybody feel that way lately? Because when you think seriously about what Paul has just said and you apply it to yourself, you're going to recognize that you are truly, genuinely depraved and therefore wretched. You've got nothing in and of yourself that you can go to God with and say, God, forgive me on the basis of how I am, of what I do. Even You can't even say... Be good to me on the basis of what I think. Because Paul's already said, yeah, but you don't do what you think. So you you really, literally, genuinely got nothing that you can take to God and plead as your cause. Which is why he would say, oh, wretched man that I am. I am wretched. I am incapable. I am frustrating myself (laughs) who will set me free from this body of death since sin, since evil is in the members of my body this body is going to bring me to death how do I escape wretched man that I am who will set me free from the body of this death, you will notice the next sentence because this is the whole thing that Paul has been building up to Notice that the answer, who will deliver me from this body of death, is not you. It is not you get busy. Notice that it is not your local church, nor a pope or a preacher or a pastor. It's nobody else. Notice that it is not find people who are worse than you, and then you'll be relatively better than them. Notice it's none of that. It can't be anything in you because he has already described you and you can't do it. You're nothing but flesh, evil, sin. If you flesh, well, it's no good thing. No good thing. Thanks be. Here's the answer. This is the whole point of that entire chapter. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. After my mind, I would serve the law of God. But after my flesh, I'm always serving the law of sin. Therefore, it has to be God through Jesus Christ. It has to be the very place I began today. It has to be grace. It has to be external to you. It has to be something God does for you for no other reason than he's being good to you. And if he is good to you and he puts you in his son and his son is in you and his spirit is in you then there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Bad news, bad news, bad news, all the way through chapter 7. You can't do it. The law can't help you. Your flesh can't help you. Sin and evil, and even though you would desire to do good, you can't be good. You can't certainly be good enough to obligate God, and you can't even do the things you wish you could do. Instead, the things that you do are the things that you don't want to do. You're in that desperate estate, and in contrast to all of that ugliness that is you, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. And do you see by the description of chapter 7, you deserve condemnation because you're nothing but rebellious constantly. You deserve condemnation, and yet there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why I keep saying, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. Because without that singular solution, you're dead. And you're not just dead in the flesh, you're dead eternally. You're under the judgment of God. He's going to judge you on the basis of you and everything you are and everything you do. And you're not going to be able to withstand that test. He's going to have no choice but to send you into outer darkness. And don't neglect the language that says... There's gnashing of teeth and wailing in that outer darkness. The language of worm never sleeping and fire never quenched. What you need is Jesus. Now, we're at the beginning of chapter 8. Do you feel like so far in the book of Romans, especially given what we've just read, do you feel like you have yet heard the gospel hmm. it's not a trick question yes. we have heard that we are sinful that all men are sinful and depraved and we have heard that the solution to our sinfulness and our lack of condemnation is the result of Jesus Christ that if we're in him and he's in us we have died to ourselves we have raised a newness of life we have the Holy Spirit of God we have heard the gospel would we agree to that yes, yes. Has he said election yet?
2: No.
1: no. No. Has he said predestination yet? No. Have you heard the gospel? Yes.
2: yes.
1: I'll let you do the math on that one. Yes, the sound doctrine matters. Yes, the sound doctrine counts. Chapter 8, chapter 9, now he's going to be getting into election and predestination. All this big stuff and all this sound doctrine stuff, where we're going to recognize that the people who come to God are the very people that God chose. Yes, but that doesn't change the fact that in these first seven chapters, we have in fact heard the news of salvation and how people get saved, which Paul himself has called the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Now, remember earlier the question I brought up? Come back next week and we will address, now that we know we're delivered from the law, that we're dead to the law, that we're not in bondage to the law, well then what is our relation to the law? And if we have no relation to the law at all, where does a new covenant believer get his standards of behavior. We will look at that next week. Or you could stay here another hour. (laughs) Never mind. Are there any questions about what you heard today? Did you have your hand up or were you just waving? No. Some years ago, I met a Nazarene. I don't see them around here very much. But uh, he had been in the church for many years. And he had mortified his flesh to such a degree that the church declared that he was free of sin. He could never sin. But he said, I do make a lot of mistakes. Oh. Uh, that's an argument that only a lawyer can love. <laughs> but I do make mistakes. Yeah. I think in contrast to uh, those holding that kind of view, that Christian perfectionist view, uh, is definitely this... Paul shows here, and with the indwelling sin, which one of my professors called like this, because it is a separate entity, he called it like this cancer, this indwelling cancer that you just cannot control, and you, and it make people wonder, well, once we become Christians, why didn't God just take that out? Yeah. And I think we see here, as the result of the end of Romans seven, He left it to put us at that very point at the end of seven, so we have no choice but to be on our knees, pointing to Christ. Absolutely. So. That's also what Bonner had said, that it's part of our ongoing discipline in this life. I mean, it's it has purpose, it has reason, or else God would have removed it. The fact that he didn't remove it means it serves some purpose in his process of saving us. But I agree with you, and I because I agree with Paul, that yeah, it's meant to lead us to that state of desperation where we got nothing but Jesus. Yes, sir, Sandy. Now, you're going to have to walk up here where I can hear you, because if you're back there. I just want to say,
2: that if you, you notice, Paul didn't give the power to the devil. He didn't give control. He gave the blame uh, to Adam. He's talking about uh, our pandemic uh, and nature. So uh, so it, it's based back on what Adam did, to he gave you.
1: I agree. Anything else? We're good? All right then, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Now say it like you mean it.
2: Bye. Bye.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.